you look again in your text in 1 Peter chapter 3, be focusing on verses 8 through 12. Well, several years ago, a Christian couple that we knew, part of a good church that uh, taught the word, they understood the word and so forth, they ended their marriage. The wife had just decided that she could no longer get along with her husband, so she filed for and received a divorce. Another marriage bit the dust. A teenage girl we knew about that same time had been living with her father and her stepmother. All of them were professing Christians. But the girl felt that she couldn't get along with her parents anymore, those that she was living with. And so she ran away and went to go live with her unconverted mother and uh, left the church and everyone as well. I knew of some families that were not too happy with what was going going on in the church where they were attending. Things weren't going their way. And so um, they'd been members of the church for years, but finally decided that they couldn't get along with the rest of the church family. So they left and have started to attend elsewhere and to join elsewhere as well. And I've mentioned this before, I think in this series, but you probably saw that video last uh, year and a half ago, maybe, of the pastor in Canada that uh, didn't appreciate the, ca- the, the lockdowns, the COVID-related lockdowns that were going on at the time, much more severe than even most places here in the United States. And so he decided to defy the orders of the province, held the services anyway. The authorities came to the church And um, he let it be known that he didn't appreciate their attendance, their presence there. And he did so in a most ungracious way, uh, yelling at the authorities, screaming at them, calling them a bunch of Nazis, uh, ordering them to get out of the church, to get off the church property and all the rest of that. It was a pretty ugly scene. And you saw the video, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When troubled times come, and come they do, whether it's uh, in a church, in a family, in a marriage, in a community, or even in a nation, it can be difficult to get along with others. And yet, it's vital that we do. The Apostle Peter recognized this, uh, the importance of that getting along, and so he wrote this letter we're reading uh, through this letter together on these Sunday mornings, the letter of First Peter. He wrote this letter to people, Christians, whom he described as pilgrims and sojourners, temporary residents uh, going through this life. And that's exactly a good way to describe Christians. Our citizenship is in heaven, and yes, we're citizens of this country in which we live, uh, or whatever country we live in uh, on, this, on this planet, but this isn't our final home. This isn't, this isn't our final destination. This isn't our final citizenship. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims here. But as pilgrims and sojourners in this world, we face various trials. He speaks of that even in the first chapters. He, he says you're going to go through various trials in this world. And as we've been pointing out in the last few weeks anyway... His objective, Peter's objective in a good chunk of this letter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, and going through chapter 3, verse 12, is to prepare us as pilgrims and sojourners in this world, to prepare us to function well under stress, 
dealing with the trials of life that we endure. So let's review this. Look again in your Bibles at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In those two verses, he provides the general framework for living as pilgrims in a foreign land. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, and here is the counsel, the general framework. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So that's just a general framework. But then he takes that framework and he applies it to some specific areas of life. In verses 13 to 17, he applies that framework to our relationship with the government. In verses 18 through 25, the end of chapter 2, he applies the framework to harsh employment conditions. How are we to function as strangers and pilgrims in, a, in an employment condition that is less than favorable and is really a, a trial to us? He applies it in that passage. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he applies that framework to married life. How should we get along as husbands and wives with one another when there are pressures coming upon us and there are trials that are, that are afflicting us? How should we get along with one another? But then today, in today's text, in verses 8 to 12, he applies that framework to the interpersonal relationships that we have as Christians with one another and then within the framework of the world uh, beyond our front door. And it is this that we want to give our attention to today. And notice that he says in, in verse 8 that getting along in the church is really foundational. It is foundational. Here's the thing, and let's be honest. Let's admit it, okay? When we're going through trials, the, the tendency, the natural inclination is for those trials to turn us inward, to turn our attention upon ourselves and to, to, to have all of our thoughts and, and, and energies expended toward dealing with what I am dealing with. So instead of having an interest in the body of the local church, we tend to be self-interested. We, we can be inclined to be indifferent toward the problems and the needs of others rather than expressing sympathy when we're going through problems ourselves. We can be self-absorbed rather than expressing love for the brethren. We can be callous, can't we? When we're, when we're suffering, when we're dealing with various trials on our own, we can be callous toward those who are also going through trials rather than expressing pity, especially if their problems aren't as big as my problems. And we can be guilty of a proud self-centeredness instead of being humble. Now this I know both from personal experience as well as just years of observation. That is the tendency that trials can do to us. They can, they can make us turn inward. But Christ's call is instead to focus outward. I want you to turn to John chapter 13 with me, and I want you to notice 
this call that Christ issues to us to focus outward. Now, now get the context of John chapter 13. If you know the Gospel of John, you know that the, a big chunk of that Gospel is focused on a very, very brief period of time. Chapter 13 uh, through, really, uh, chapter 20 is focused on like 24 hours. Well, chapter 20 gets into the resurrection, so that's three days later. But let's go to 19. But before the crucifixion, that, that these it's like four four chapters, five chapters that really focus on 24 hours time. So chapter 13 is taking place on the night of the betrayal, the night of the Last Supper. It's all happening in that upper room. Jesus spends a lot of time teaching his disciples in these final moments before he's going to be crucified. But notice in chapter 13, by way of his example and his teaching, he calls us to focus outward, and he is doing this in the context of the cross. So this isn't teaching that takes place in a time of great peace and tranquility where all, where all is going to be well and everybody's going to have a good time for the next two or three weeks. Look at what he does. Verse 1 says that in chapter 13 that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Remember remember 1 Peter 3, 8. The, the, the focal point of 1 Peter 3, 8 is love as brethren. All right? Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them to the end, the end of verse 1 says. In verses 3 through 5, he displayed a tremendous example of humility as he uh, got up from the table, girded himself with a towel, and in verse 5, he poured water into a basin to wash his disciples' feet. And you compare what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... If I have expressed such humility to stoop down and wash your feet, he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Jesus is calling us to humility. And in verses 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Remember, Jesus is giving this instruction. He's teaching this in the context of the cross. Do you think Jesus is facing trials? It's only a brief moment from this Teaching when he's going to be in the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Absolutely, he's facing trials. He could very well be so self-absorbed that he doesn't think anything about his disciples, but that's not what he's doing. He is displaying humility. He is showing love for them. He is commanding them to love others, and he's doing this even in the face of of trouble. Look at chapter 14 of John's Gospel, 14 and verse 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, 
Neither let it be afraid. Jesus is acknowledging that you are to live this way even in the face of troubles that you're going to have in this world. Uh, over a page in chapter 15, verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also, but they won't. They, they're going to persecute you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm calling you to have an outward focus. In chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. You think Jesus is acknowledging the reality that these, these believers are strangers and pilgrims in this world are going to face trials and troubles and difficulties. Yes, he absolutely is. And yet in all of this, what does, he, what does he pray for? In chapter 17, John 17, verses 20 and 21, he prays for unity, the unity of God's people. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then, now look at the end of verse 20, or verse 21. He says, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And, and, and the reason I'm emphasizing that is Jesus is emphasizing the need for the, the strangers and pilgrims in this world to have a testimony that testifies that they are God's people that they are followers of Christ. Remember, he said that back in chapter 13, verse 35 as well, when he said, uh, when he said by this all men are going to know that you're my disciples. They will all know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. There is a testimony that God's people need to display and need to, need to declare to the world around them, a world around us, even in times of trial and difficulty, in tribulation, even in persecution, that we are the people of God. How will we give such testimony? By our love one for another. Now, again, I emphasize that because of, of Peter's framework. Remember Peter's framework in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, especially verse 12. He says, Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is emphasizing the need for the strangers and pilgrims going through trials and difficulties in this world to have a testimony before those, even those, who are persecuting them. So Christ calls us to have this outward focus, even when we're inclined to focus inwardly. And Peter, here in our text this morning, Peter is simply echoing that challenge. Look again at verse 8. And I want, you to notice, uh, I want you to notice something structural about verse 8. He says, finally, all of you be, 
And then he itemizes five things, right? Be of one mind. Two, having compassion for one another. Three, love as brethren. Four, be tenderhearted. And five, be courteous. Now, the structural thing about verse 8 is that this is a chiasm. Some of you remember that word. A chiasm uh, is, is simply a way of structuring something so that I, the first and last item are parallel, the second and next to the last item are parallel, and so on. And it's an odd-numbered thing. And the thing in the middle becomes the most important. So look at this, look at this structure of Peter's. What, what goes together, the first and the last item? Be of one mind, and uh, in, our, in the New King James translation, it says, be courteous. That should better be translated, be humble. Be of one mind, be humble. So Peter's challenge, as he echoes the challenge of Jesus, is for the strangers and pilgrims, that's us, who are, who are followers of Christ. We are to keep humble harmony with one-mindedness and humility. Humble harmony. Now, lest there be any misunderstanding, Peter is not calling for some kind of a cult-like uniformity where everybody, you know, looks the same, uh, you know, has, has exactly the same way of thinking about every little thing in life. Uh, and so forth. That's not, what he's call, that's not what he's calling for. That's not the unity that God's word is calling for among God's people. The, the, the unity that he's calling for is a unity of shared values, of shared values based upon uh, and informed by God's word. He's calling for a unity where we recognize and contend for the same core fundamental truths of the scriptures where we proclaim the same gospel, where we are devoted to the same Christ, to his supremacy and to his glory. This is what he's calling us to be united about, to be harmonious about. And we are to maintain that harmony with humility. Because let's acknowledge something. The harmony of a church as well as family or anywhere else, harmony is most easily disrupted by prideful self-assertion or, or an insistence on my way or a focus on my problems and hurts and so forth uh, above everybody else's. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, in my own personal experience from years and years ago, I was a much younger pastor, and I'm a, I probably would have admittedly done something things a little bit differently here, but uh, there, there was a younger couple in our church. They were in their mid-30s. And uh, the, the, the wife, her grandfather, had been ill for quite some time, had been in the hospital for quite a long time, and he finally passed away. And the funeral for the grandfather, so this is... You know, the, the woman in our church, her parents weren't in the church. The grandfather wasn't in the church. The grandfather and his funeral were, were going to be over an hour away from the community in which we lived. Well, you know, to, to show sympathy and so forth for the, 
the woman in our church whose grandfather passed away, the church sent flowers and sent cards and all the rest of that kind of thing, and uh, phone calls and, all, and so forth. But uh, then the funeral came and went, and after the funeral, this, this woman was as cold as ice, and she had a look of anger on her face when she came into church. And, um, and I saw her, I said, hey, is, there, is everything okay? And she just, gla- she just glared at me and said, no, everything's not okay. I said, well, what's the matter? What's wrong? Why didn't you come to my grandfather's funeral? Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I just this is a church of about a hundred people, and I'm thinking if I have to go to everybody's relative's funeral, that's you know an hour or so away. I mean, I might not do anything else in life but be traveling to this kind of thing. I said, well, you know, I, I, I just, I, I just it didn't just didn't occur to me to, that I would need to do that. You didn't express it, you know, and so forth. This was the one time in my life when I needed my pastor there, and you weren't there. Right? You know, maybe I should have gone to that. Maybe I should have been more sensitive. I was down south, and you know, people are, tend to be a little more sensitive and all that kind of thing. But, but here's the thing. The, the, the woman and her family end up leaving the church over that. And, I, and I've reflected on Yeah, you know, I could have. And I apologized to her. I said, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't know you would have been so deeply troubled by that and so desperately needing of your pastor in that moment. Or, or I definitely would have been there. And, and I thought, reflected on that and thought, here's a good example of, okay, did I fail? Perhaps so. But, what, but, but failure can go broader than that, right? Here's an example of the, the, the failure to pursue exactly what Peter is calling for. She's going through a time of difficulty, a time of trial, understandable. But what about the pursuit of this humble harmony instead of the demanding upon my way? Uh, a, a self-assertion that insists you focus only on my problems and not anybody else's. No, we're to pursue and to keep humble harmony. Secondly, we're also supposed to express compassionate care. And here might be a way in which I failed in this particular regard. But nevertheless, Peter puts these two things together in verse 8, having compassion for one another and being tender-hearted. The word compassion is the word sympathy. It expresses the uh, idea of entering into the joys and the sorrows of other people. Even as Paul speaks in Romans 12, 15, where he says, you are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's sympathy. That's having compassion on others. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Compassion. Compassion coupled with tenderheartedness, that is, a sensitivity to the needs of other people. And when you take those two things together, when you, when you uh, weld them together, this tenderhearted compassion, it is, a, it, it is a genuine wanting to and seeking to help meet the needs of others, even in times of difficulty right? The bigger context 
You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim in this world, and you're facing various trials. But don't let the various trials that you are facing keep you from also expressing compassionate care for those in the body of Christ. And then there's an item in the middle. It stands alone. And in verse 8, that item in the middle that stands alone is to love as brothers. Express brotherly love. Or another way to put this, show loving loyalty. Now the thing about, the, the thing about using a structure like a chiasm is it's designed to, to focus down on the key, the most important item in the list. And in this case, it's zeroing in on, it's focusing down on this, this, important, this important need to love the brethren, to show loving loyalty. Because here's the thing, if we love one another as we are to love one another, even as Christ exhorted in John 13, right? If we love the brethren as we are to love the brethren, then these other matters of compassionate care and, 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 hum, and humility, uh, humble harmony, those things will more easily fall into place. You know, there's that saying, speaking of uh, the, the, the loving loyalty that is demonstrated within, the fam- within families, right? Blood is thicker than what? than water. Blood is thicker than water. And we recognize that truism. We experience it in our own families. Blood is thicker than water. But here's the emphasis of the body of Christ, the family of Christ. The blood of Christ is thicker still. There is the, there is the blood of Christ that binds us to one another, that, that is a is really the, the, the lifeblood of the family of, of God, especially that comprises a local church. Show loving loyalty. All right? So this, this need of getting along in the church is foundational. But verse 9, he moves from a focus on the church to looking outside the church and emphasizes the importance that getting along in the world is essential. It's essential. And again, let's be honest with ourselves and with one another. Getting along in the world can be incredibly challenging because, even as Christ has promised, the world can be a cruel place to the strangers and pilgrims who are Christians. What did Christ himself experience? Look back at verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, When he, Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And now, Peter takes that experience of Christ and he turns it to us, the strangers and the pilgrims. He says, When you are suffering evil, don't return evil for evil. When you are being reviled, don't return, don't reciprocate in kind. That can be an incredibly difficult thing, incredibly challenged, because we are, again, just like we are inclined when we're going through trials of our, ourselves to turn inwardly and to focus inwardly, we are also naturally inclined 
to respond in kind when we are being treated wrongly and when we are being reviled. Retaliation is a powerful, powerful temptation. But you know, the book of Proverbs warns us against this, doesn't it? Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. Proverbs warns against it. Jesus spoke against it, against retaliation. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 through 45, Jesus said this, He says, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So your heavenly Father... He, he, you know, what, what does the average sinner do in relation to God? They ignore him. They, they shake the fist at him. They don't want anything to do with him. They defy his word, defy his law, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And what does God do? He blesses them with rain. He blesses them with sunshine so that they can have a harvest. They can have crops. They can eat. They can provide for their families. And this is what Christ calls us to do. He speaks against that retaliation. Don't retaliate, Jesus says. And Paul, the apostle, spoke against it as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Now here, in our text, we are exhorted to respond in a way that is surprising. Not retaliation, but blessing. You see this? Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary wise, blessing. Blessing? What am I supposed to say to the person who treats me evil? What am I supposed to say to the person who reviles me? Again, what did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. This is not the way I'm inclined to respond. I don't know about you. Maybe you have reached a level of sanctification that far exceeds mine. And this is an automatic response to you, that when you are treated ill, that you respond in such a way that says, bless you, my child, or something of that nature. Instead of having to fight with your inclination to do such a thing. This is, this is countercultural. This is against our intuition. This is against our fallen nature to respond with anything but being in kind. But we are to respond with blessing. So it's definitely challenging, but it is personally critical. Look at the last part of verse 9. He says, in the contrary, respond with blessing, knowing that, now look, knowing that you were called to this. You were called to this. It is personally critical that you and I not respond with retaliation, but instead respond with blessing because I have to do this in order to fulfill my calling. 
I have been called to respond with blessing. I've been called to the duty of blessing. This is what Jesus called us to. We read of it in Matthew 5, verse 44. I, I, I quote it again, Luke chapter 6, where he said the same thing. It was, it was Luke's gospel, a record of that. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. This is your calling. Paul brought it out in Romans 12, 14 as well, where he said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We've been called to this. It's not only necessary to respond this way to fulfill our calling, it's necessary to respond this way to inherit our blessing. Look at the end of verse 9. On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You may inherit a blessing. Now, what he's not talking about, what Peter is not talking about, is the blessing of eternal life. He's not saying, okay, in order for you to earn heaven, you've got to do this. No, you're, you, you have that inheritance settled and sealed and secured when you are converted, when you're genuinely converted. By the way, are you? Are you? Do you, do you have that inheritance of heaven secured? In, is it in your name? Have you come to faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sin, turned from your sin, and turned to Christ, called upon Him to save you? If you have, and you have been converted, and you're a follower of Christ, well, even if you fail from time to time, and you follow your natural inclination of retaliation and so forth, the inheritance of heaven can never be taken away from you. Peter's already made that very clear earlier in his epistle. So what inheritance is he talking about? What blessing is he talking about here? Well, I think he's probably talking about the inheritance that Jesus was talking about, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, remember what Jesus said? He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, that you may inherit that blessing, the blessing of, of uh, this rejoicing in that your name's written down in heaven, and even though I'm being persecuted, I'm not going to respond in kind. Blessed are you when you respond in that way. You inherit the blessing of God's smile, of God's, God's approval, that you have followed the example of Christ. You have behaved in a Christ-like way. You have responded as Christ responded, who, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. Getting along in the church is foundational. Getting along in the world is essential. But now notice in the last three verses... Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he emphasizes, emphasizes the fact that getting along is simply, is simply fundamental. It's simply fundamental. It is, it is fundamental for loving life. He asks the question, who would love life and see good days? And what's the answer to that question? Everyone, right? 
Everyone. This is, this is a common goal. Is there, is there anybody who doesn't want to love life? No, everybody wants to love life. Now, how do people go about pursuing that? Well, that's another question altogether. The goal is not an uncommon goal. This is, this is a goal of, of living in a way that we really relish the life in which we've been given. We love life. Now, nobody is so naive as to think that what Peter is talking about as he quotes the psalmist, Psalm 34, is talking about a life that is completely free from problems. Who has ever known such a life? Even the psalmist, when he wrote this, was not talking out of the context of a life free from problems. In fact, he was writing about life in the midst of problems. You can read it yourself to find that out. Psalm 34, it's a life of blessing amid the problems of life. A goal is a common goal to love life. But the question is, how is that goal to be attained? What Peter is calling for is a means of attaining that goal of loving life that is uncommon. How do most people pursue a life that they will love? How are you pursuing a life that you will love? I mean, look at the culture around us. Look at the world in which we live. I think uh, you can answer that question in a number of ways. Some people are seeking to love their life that they have, that they've been given, by uh, the accumulation of wealth. They just have enough wealth. They can buy whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. And then life will be life. I'll love that kind of life. Uh, other people, and this is becoming more and more common, I think, in our, our culture today, uh, other people think, um, I, I, I will love life so long as I have plenty of adventures to pursue and enjoy. So they're always in the pursuit of the next adventure. They're living for the next adventure, and they really just love uh, the adventures of life. Other people pursue different experiences of any kind, cultural culinary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more of those experiences that they can enjoy, the more they will love life. And some people, some people, you know, well-meaning people, they, they think, I will love life if I can be engaged in altruistic humanitarian service to others. So they look for ways to do that, thinking those would be the keys to loving life. But what Peter calls us to as strangers and pilgrims in this world, even while we're going through times of trouble and difficulty, the means of attaining that life that we love is uncommon. And he says three things. Keep your tongue, shun evil, seek peace. Look at them. Last part of verse 10. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, not rendering evil for evil. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. When you're reviled, don't revile back, right? Shun evil, he says, at the beginning of verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Don't render evil for evil. Instead, do good and seek peace. 
Seek peace. The last part of verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Isn't that another way of talking about the, uh, the charge in the end of verse 9? Instead of rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, blessing. Give blessing. You were called to this. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Render blessing. Seek peace with all men. Yes, with all men. That's what Paul said, right? Romans 12, 18. He says, if it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all, but particularly with God's people. In Romans 14, verse 19, Paul said, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Oh, the means of attaining a life that we love to live and to see good days is to live exactly the way Jesus has called us to live, to, to fulfill this challenge that Peter is calling us to fulfill, to get along in troubled times, in difficult times. This is essential. It's fundamental for loving life but notice in verse 12, it's also fundamental for pleasing God. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord look with favor upon those who will live this way, who will get along in troubled times. His ears are open with interest to those who will get along in troubled times. By the way, I want you to notice this is the second time in this section of instruction where answered prayer is at stake. Back in, chapter, back in verse 7, he tells husbands, you need to dwell with your wives according to understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessels, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And here he says, you need to get along in troubled times. Get along with one another in the framework of the church. Get along in troubled times in the world as much as lies within you. Because even your prayers, the answers to your prayers are at stake. Now, as you well know, as you well know, we're, we're living in some of the most troubling times in the last few generations, aren't we? How's this all, how, how is all of this affecting your relationships to those closest to you, to your church family, to the world outside your front door? Are you reflecting the humility of Christ, the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ? Our Father in heaven, this is a challenging passage for us because so much of it runs against the, the grain of our, our fallen nature. When we're hurting and when we're going through trials and difficulties, it is so, so easy, it's so natural just to think about ourselves. And it is so natural to retaliate against those who might be causing us pain. Father, I pray that you would challenge us to respond to these things in a way that reflects the humility of Christ, that demonstrates the love of Christ, 
and that promotes and proclaims the gospel of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name.